morning. So beautiful to be back and uh, seeing all of your faces. Uh, I feel like I've been away more than present in the last month with Kirk and uh, being up the coast. So how beautiful to be back and to be having the privilege as your pastor to share God's Word with you this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, we're turning back to our series in First Peter. Uh, so we're going to be opening up to First Peter chapter 2 uh, this morning. Uh, it's been so long since we've been uh, in First Peter that it would probably serve us well for a bit of a reminder of where we're up to. Remember, First Peter was written to scattered Christians throughout uh, a land that is modern-day Turkey. Uh, these Christians were oppressed. They were persecuted. They were maligned, and yet they had come to faith in Jesus. Peter the Apostle, the disciple of Jesus, uh, is writing to encourage these scattered Christians. He has written this letter for circulation. Uh, they might feel unwanted. They might feel like they're not at home, and yet they are chosen and precious to God. They have the hope of life because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. They might face trials and difficulties in life, but God is refining them. God is calling them to be holy and set apart like himself. In fact, God has planted a seed, an imperishable seed of the imperishable, the living, the powerful, the eternal word of God in their hearts. And that seed has grown forth and transformed them. They have been born again and called to obey God's word and to love one another with a deep and genuine love. And so the question we face as we begin our verses this morning is, but how can we do that? So why don't you join with me in reading 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through to 3. This is the living, breathing, holy word of God to us this morning, church. Verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the privilege of being addressed this morning by you. And Lord God, we come before your throne and we kneel down before your feet and we ask and we pray that you would soften our hearts to hear from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know this will be controversial, but the truth is that I hate camping. Now, for our younger folks here, maybe you're in high school, maybe you're a university student, I just want to help you understand something. When school finishes, when uni finishes, 
you don't get many holidays. And those holidays are precious. Now, why would I waste them paying to be either extremely hot or extremely cold, to have terrible sleep, to eat poorly, to be bitten by critters, and return home more exhausted than when I left? Now, parenting small children is already difficult. Why would I make my life harder than necessary? It seems a lot of work, not much return. It might be for others, but for me and my household, no. Kevin DeYoung, in his book, The Hole in Our Holiness, makes the point that we often think about the pursuit of Christian growth much like we think about camping. Uh, He puts it this way. Is it possible you look at personal holiness like I look at camping? It's fine for other people. You sort of respect those who make their lives harder than they have to be. But it's not really your thing. You didn't grow up with a concern for holiness. It wasn't something you talked about. It wasn't what your family prayed about or your church emphasized. So, to this day... It's not your passion. The pursuit of holiness feels like one more thing to worry about in your already impossible life. Sure, it would be great to be a better person and you do hope to avoid the really big sins, but you figure since we're saved by grace, holiness is not required of you. And frankly, your life seems fine without it. Do you resonate with that kind of sentiment? Do you have a similar distaste for any sense of effort towards growing in godliness. I think if we're honest with ourselves, there's probably not many of us who would say that they're really passionate about growing in godliness or holiness. You know, if we're honest, the truth be told, we live in a Christian culture that largely tells us that's the way it should be. A secular culture says we should be able to live as we please. There's not really any right or wrong as long as we follow the do no harm rule. We don't harm anyone else. And so in our Christian subculture, we largely do the same. We kind of avoid the big sins and kind of kick back and let grace do the rest. There's a popular saying that says, let go and let God. But that's a misunderstanding of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has, according to Scripture, broken sin's power, yes. And the Holy Spirit enables us to live to please God. It empowers our efforts. We rightly proclaim that Jesus has rescued us from many different things. Bondage to sin, God's wrath. Yet often I put to us, we forget what Jesus has saved us to, which is that is transformation into his image, adoption as his children. You see, growing in godliness is not only a major theme of the Bible, but a major theme of our letter as well. Now consider with me how our letter starts at the very beginning. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, listen to this, for obedience to Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 14 of chapter 1, as 
obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And again, in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Now, the Apostle Peter has been reminding these persecuted, isolated, out-of-place Christians, not only that Christ has rescued them, but that he is calling them into obedience. The obvious question this raises, though, that Peter now moves to address is how? How can we grow to be his holy people? If you're note-taking this morning, I've uh, got four points this morning. Uh, The title of this message I've entitled, A Heart to Grow. Four points, and yet one uh, real principle that I believe this passage uh, informs us and that God would speak to us in this morning, which is really simply that we would cultivate fresh desire to be more like our Lord Jesus. I believe the intended effect of this passage on our lives is for us to grow to cultivate more and more desire to be like our Lord Jesus. Well, let's begin our time uh, together this morning with point number one, the possibility of growth. You know, I wonder if you're here this morning and you have a desire to grow, but you're discouraged. And you're beginning to wonder if in maybe one particular area, maybe multiple areas, is it even possible for you to grow? Maybe you want to be more prayerfully dependent. And each morning your alarm goes off and you snooze again and again and again and you just never seem to make the time. Maybe you want to build up others with your words, but time and time again you find yourself gossiping about others again. Maybe you want to take a stand for your faith And maybe you want to invite a friend to read the Bible with you, but you chicken out again. You want to honor God with your eyes and your heart, and yet you find yourself on your phone scrolling, looking at filth again. You want to trust God in a difficult season, and yet you find yourself incredibly fearful and anxious and not coming to Him again. Maybe it's just that you've stagnated and you're not detecting any growth in your life life. You know, even as I was preparing this message, this, this message is timely for me personally, church. I'll have you know, uh, this message, I, as I was writing it, I realized that Charlotte raised something about, uh, about me about a month ago, uh, about me being absent uh, at home, often on my phone. And I realized one month later, there's been little progress in my life. Your struggle perhaps this morning has left you questioning whether growth is even possible for you in the first place. I believe the Lord wants to speak to you this morning from his word. Read with me the very first couple of words from verse 1. He says this. This is the word of God. So put away. So. Or perhaps better, therefore. You know, every time in the Bible you read a therefore, you need to ask yourself a question. What is the therefore, therefore? The therefore points us every time back to something that's come before. Well, what comes before? What does our passage flow from? Well, Peter, having called these Christians to a deep and genuine love for one another, says the following in verse 23. He says this in verse 23 of chapter 1. Since you have been born again, 
not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. Peter says they have been born again by the word of God. He says our physical life is like grass. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And yet God has transformed our hearts with his eternal living word. See, Peter is recalling the words of our Lord Jesus to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3 verse 3, it says that Jesus answered Nicodemus and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See, even the teacher of Israel, the person who we would have called in today, perhaps something like the Reverend Professor Nicodemus, could not enter the kingdom of God on his own merit. He needed heart transformation. He needed a change so radical, it's like being born for a second time. And Peter is saying to these Christians that God's living word has been planted in their hearts like a seed, and it has taken root, and it has transformed them from the inside. Their physical bodies may fail. They may even be killed for their faith. And yet this word will remain forever. He's saying the power of sin has been permanently broken in their lives. The Holy Spirit has taken root in their hearts, enabling them to live for Christ. You know, if you're here this morning and you're trusting in Jesus, do you realize that the living abiding, eternal word of God has been planted like a seed in your heart. It's a permanent change. It's a change to the core of you that God has achieved. It cannot be undone. It will continue to grow and grow and grow. The power of sin has been broken. Obedience to God is now possible for you. And that's our first point. But secondly, not just the possibility of growth, but point to obstacles to growth. If you've been following Jesus for a while, you might have come this far in full agreement. Yes, the power of sin has been broken. So we have no part to play in growing. We just need to trust. We just need to let go and let God do the work. It sounds spiritual, right? The problem is, it's not biblical. The Bible teaches us that sanctification is not by surrender, but by divinely enabled effort. Uh, Listen to these words of the, the famous... A 20th century Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I love Martin Lloyd-Jones, he cuts straight to the point. He says this, The New Testament calls upon us to take action. It does not tell us that the work of sanctification is going to be done for us. We are in the good fight of faith, and we have to do the fighting. But thank God we are enabled to do it. For the moment we believe and are justified by faith and are born again of the Spirit of God, we have the ability. So the New Testament method of sanctification is to remind us of that. And having reminded us of that, 
it says, that, now then, go and do it. See, the Holy Spirit works within us to enable us to grow and fight the good fight of faith. And it's a fight, it's called a fight because there are, in fact, obstacles to it. Obstacles that are raised in our passage. Verse 1 of our chapter, uh, read with me again. So, therefore, put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. You know, the word here for put away is a word that most commonly refers to taking off of clothing, to lay aside or rid yourself of some sort of garment. And because God has put his word into your heart, because you've been born again, there are certain old ways of living that need to be removed. Peter here lists five different qualities. It kind of appears a little bit random as a list at first, but when you pause and think about it, each of these items is simply the opposite of the kind of sincere and pure and earnest love that Peter has called them to in the preceding verses in verse 22. These are sins that tear at the social fabric of the church and rip relationships apart. Malice, it refers to ill intent or ill will towards other people. Deceit, it's lying or dishonesty that seeks to take advantage of someone else or to harm someone else. Hypocrisy refers to play-acting, pretending to be a kind of person, perhaps a godly or spiritual person, when in fact you are not. Envy, it's the opposite of thankfulness. It's a deep desire for what others have and a lack of thanks for God's abundant provision. Slander, any speech which harms or intends to harm other people. If our calling is to be a people after the Lord's Jesus' heart, who sacrificially love one another, this is an anti-growth list. This is a list of ways to tear others down and injure those around us. It's the very opposite of what we've been called to. These are obstacles to growth. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're to make every effort to take off these old clothes. I want to ask us together as a community this morning, are you aware of any unloving attitudes towards those in our community? Well, would we be a people that grow? Peter's encouragement is to take them off. It's not enough to simply get rid of the things that stand in the way of us growing. That alone isn't going to motivate us to, to get off the couch and do something. It feels kind of like just adding a list of items, a long list of things in addition that we ought to feel guilty about. We need to know not just how to remove obstacles to growth, but we need to know how to grow. And so we move to our third point for our time this morning, the secret to growth. See, in our passage, Peter is going to paint a picture for us that is initially confusing. But there's one thing which I believe will make it clearer for us. That is to understand that it's actually a picture about just one thing. And that one thing is how we grow. Read with me again verses 2 and 3. Peter says this, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. 
We grow in the same way that a newborn baby grows, as it's fed milk by its mother. Well, how does a newborn baby relate to its mother? Well, it's a relationship of complete dependence, isn't it? It needs her for everything, for nourishment, for protection, for shelter, for warmth, for love and affection. The baby is in constant need of its mother and constantly calls for her. The baby also has a deep and intuitive trust of its mother. In her presence, it is quickly calmed. And similarly, there's also a key point of application for us in this verse, a key word of command that is to be the direction of our grace-motivated, Holy Spirit-empowered efforts. The key word in these verses is the word long for, perhaps even better translated, crave. Crave. Peter is imploring these Christians to have a deep desire for pure spiritual milk that will lead them to grow up into their salvation, to become like Jesus. Well, the obvious question is, what is this pure spiritual milk? What is it? What's well, different from the simple teaching or milk that the Corinthians and the Hebrews needed in Paul's letter to the Corinthians and in Hebrews because they were too immature and worldly. There's nothing to suggest that these Christians are immature or worldly or new believers. This milk is what they need in order to be able to grow. This is not a rebuke. These are newborn infants or newborn infants should have a deep craving for milk. The images of a mother nursing an infant, what they need is the very substance of life itself, that which all Christians need to progress in their spiritual lives. There's actually a clue in the passage. The word translated spiritual is the word logicon. It means thoughtful or carefully thought through or But in other words, pure, appropriate milk or the right milk or logical milk that will help us grow. This pure milk that will help us grow into our salvation, into what we are saved to, which is to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. Well, what is this pure, appropriate milk that we are to crave? I put to you this morning, this pure milk, this appropriate milk we are to crave is more of God in our lives. These Christians have been born again as newborn babies through the word being planted in their hearts. Now like newborn infants constantly look to their mother for sustenance, they need to look to God for everything. They need to crave more of God. This is the secret of growth, cultivating more desire for more of God in our lives. John Calvin puts it so succinctly, what is this craving for spiritual milk that we are commanded to by Peter? He puts it this way. He says, it is a mode of living when we surrender ourselves to be brought up by God. This is a mode of living. Craving spiritual milk is a mode of living, a way of living that surrenders oneself completely to be brought up by God. Can I ask you a personal question this morning? How is your desire for God? Are you on fire? Is your heart filled with flames of love for the Lord Jesus? 
or is it cold? You know, a newborn baby's craving for milk is a powerful image of desire. A little bit too close for home for uh, Charlotte and I at the moment. We've got three boys, three and under, and our third is four months old. Last night was a beautiful example of this very picture every one to two hours. Little Benji, when he wants milk, I'll tell you how it starts. It starts with a little bit of a mumble, a little bit unsettled, maybe flailing the arms a little bit. Quickly, you see the sign of sucking on the hands. And then it moves to a little bit of a complaint, a little bit of complaining. And then it moves to crying, then it moves to screaming. Then it moves to angry, inconsolable screaming. The purest of desperation, inconsolable until that child gets its milk. Can I press you a little more? Is that the kind of desire that you have for God? Like a baby for milk. You know, truth be told, our craving is often less like a newborn for milk and more like a toddler at dinner. Oh dear. My son Elijah at dinner. Every possible trick to avoid consuming what is on his plate. Sliding on his seat under the table, turning around and facing the other way, Making shapes and ABCs with his food. Threats don't seem to cut it. Hiding the food in various places, mainly on the floor. We have tried every trick. Let me tell you this. We once had a standoff with him for 24 hours. After 24 hours of continually presenting the one dish before him, we caved. Sad to say. You know, for many of us, our desire to grow for God, to have more of Him in our lives, is often more reminiscent of a toddler at dinner than a baby crying for milk. Well, if that's true, how can we grow? How can we grow in our desire for more of God? How can we grow to live more fully surrendered to Him? Can we just will ourselves to want more of God? I believe the key is in verse 3. Verse 3, read with me. Peter says, If indeed... You have tasted that the Lord is good. Perhaps even better, since you have tasted that the Lord is delicious. See, taste is different from sight or touch or smell. It's the most intimate of our senses. To taste the Lord is to experience Him as intimately as a fine meal. 
and to find him exquisitely delicious, incredibly attractive, irresistibly compelling. Here's the truth. No one ever tries a piece of Belgian fine chocolate or a high-grade piece of Wagyu or sips a Penfolds Grange Hermitage, enjoys it, and then says, I have no desire for any more of this ever again. That would be crazy. You enjoy it, and you immediately want more. You tell people how good it was. You dream about it. You plan straight away where you can make the time to go back and try it again. You know, our letter, Peter, is clearly meditating on Psalm 34. It's written by David when he fled for his life from King Saul. He hides with the king of Gath and pretends to be insane in order to survive. And David says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. David says, God richly blesses those who look for him to help. He is incredibly good. You can intimately experience and witness his goodness. Yet the truth is, we have tasted the goodness of the Lord in a way that David couldn't have imagined. We know the Lord has a sweetness of taste far beyond anything he could have imagined because of the Lord Jesus, our King. See, the beauty of our Christian faith, the beauty that makes it so unique and unparalleled is that God would be willing to suffer and die for his creatures. Such is the depth of his love for us. That we have a purpose, that we were made by God to know him and love him. And we all know we do not desire him as we should. And yet that the Lord Jesus came and he lived a life of perfect desire for God in our place. And then at the cross, he turned to God for refuge and experienced not sweetness, but the bitterness of the cup of God's wrath in our place, that forever we might taste his sweetness. And that he rose in victory, granting us assurance that God, the Lord, is indeed good. See, when Peter calls us to desire more of God in his lives, he's saying, long for more of the one who would be willing to bleed for you. As was mentioned in the prayer this morning, this week we lost one of the most influential Christians of the last hundred years in Tim Keller. One of the beautiful things uh, has been to read about his last moments uh, this week online. Uh, He came home from uh, the hospital into palliative care uh, in his own home on the 18th uh, of this week. And he waited until the next day and a time when he could be alone with his wife, Kathy, his wife of 48 years. And his last uh, recorded words were that he said to his wife the following, There is no downside for me in leaving, not in the slightest. And she kissed his forehead and he breathed his last. He knew the sweetness of the Lord Jesus. He knew that he would meet Christ. So how can Peter command us long for the pure spiritual milk? 
because we have tasted how incredibly sweet it is at the foot of the cross. And that's the secret to growth in the Christian life. It's to actively seek to crave more and more of God by repeatedly tasting of his goodness. Well, I want to end with a final point. Uh, I've entitled it The Practice of Growth, really by pausing to look at how we can take some steps forward in this way. You know, I started our time together by sharing how we have this aversion to growing in godliness. We kind of view it like camping, which to me, as I've mentioned, is like unnecessarily making your life overly difficult. And I've been trying to argue that the key to growing in godliness is to seek out, to foster, to deeply desire more of God in our lives, to have a life that is incredibly, increasingly surrendered to Him. Why? Because He's incredibly good. He's delicious. He leaves you wanting more and more. And because our growth is ultimately to become like the Lord Jesus, which is the sweetest of privileges in the world. And so I wanted to end our time specifically addressing those who, like me, might feel a conviction that you've been waning in your desire for more of God. And so the question I want to consider are, what are some of the means that God has given us to grow in our desire for Him? Put another way, I've kind of put together a small tasting menu with three items you can pick from. Uh, pick just one. General principle of growing in Christ is not to overwhelm yourself, but to have one thing that you can focus on in order to help you grow. Well, from this tasting menu, just three things. Remembering that, first of all, Calvin said that craving spiritual milk is a a mode of living when we surrender ourselves to be brought up by God. So how can we taste? How can we grow? The first I would say is to taste his goodness by surrendering. The Lord Jesus told us and told his disciples that they will have a childlike faith, which is a picture, well, which is what the picture of a newborn craving for milk is all about. It points to that. And a reason why we might have little desire to grow is that we actually have a different agenda for our lives. Put crudely, maybe we're a little bit like a boss baby. You know, a newborn who wants to set the menu and is craving pizza and chips isn't going to grow. We need to renew our commitment to live for Him and to surrender ourselves completely for Him. To pray dangerous prayers that use the evers on the end. Lord Jesus, I will go wherever you send me. I will do whatever you would have me do. Whenever you ask, however you choose to send me, Lead me and guide me. Lord Jesus, whatever needs to change in my life, take away any hindrance to growth, my health, my wealth, my job, my relationships, whatever it takes to make me more like you. Forgive me for attempting to chart my own path. Take full control of my life and raise me as your child. Friends, that's a dangerous prayer to pray. Surrendering yourself to the Lord. But I believe it's the heartbeat of what it means to crave spiritual milk and more of Christ in our lives. Taste by surrendering. Experience his goodness as you crave not the things of this world, but more of him in your life and entrust yourself to him. The second way I I believe you can taste is by loving and serving his people. You know, it's easy to believe you don't need to grow much when you're all by yourself. 
There's nothing like the ability of sinners to reveal sin in a fellow sinner. Isn't that true? And that's the context of our passage. It's a call to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why Peter begins with a list of things that will hinder our ability to love the church community and therefore hinder our ability to grow. Things like malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. You know, if you're lacking in desire to have more of Christ in your life, a question I want to ask you is how are you going in loving people in this community? Is it possible you're standing at a distance? Is it possible you've become isolated? Is it possible you've stopped loving others in both word and deed? And you've lost a heart for the people here. You know, the fruit of loving and serving God's people is to grow in a heart for his people. To see him at work in their lives and to see his kindness and his goodness and his nearness more clearly. And so that's the second way we can taste. Taste by loving and serving his people. But finally, to taste by daily communing with him. You know, if you're here and you're not reading uh, this word or spending time in prayer, it will be very difficult for you to grow. It's like attempting an apprenticeship without ever turning up on site, except that the Lord Jesus is greater than any qualification or trade. It's like being offered the most exquisite feast each morning, but preferring scraps, except he's greater than any meal. It's like being invited each morning to spend time with King Charles, but preferring to scroll on your phone, except he's greater and can't even be compared with any earthly king. You know, recently we opened Galatians 4 together to see how we've been adopted into his family. You know, if the father had a family dinner table, the Lord Jesus would be there and so would you. You know, as a longing father, he longs to speak with you and teach you and hear from you. And that's the privilege we have through his word each day. To begin each day tasting of his goodness. Just in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Are you lacking in desire for the Lord? Well, church, friends, taste and see how delicious he is each and every day. As we close, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian and feeling discouraged about your lack of desire for the Lord, growth is not only possible, growth is guaranteed. God has planted the seed of his word in your heart and he's caused you to be born again. The power of sin has been broken. Your eyes have been opened to all that has been done for us in Christ. The depth of our sins and their cost paid for in full. The beauty of the Lord Jesus and his love and compassion. The greatness of our calling to be like him. What a privilege to be able to repeatedly taste of his goodness throughout our days and to grow more and more to be like him. Well, let's close by praying that the Lord would cultivate in us fresh desire to become more like him, more like his son, our Lord Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we want to thank you this morning for grace upon grace. Lord, you are gracious and you are good and you are kind. And we stand before your throne in awe of you. And yet we confess, Lord God, that so often our desire for you is lacking. We are not like a newborn infant craving milk but we are often like an unsettled toddler needing coercion. Lord, forgive us, Lord God. 
Send your Holy Spirit afresh to convict us, Lord God, and to build in us a desire for you. Would there be grace-empowered, Holy Spirit-given grace to pursue you, Lord God, and effort empowered by you to taste again and again and again of how good you are. And would it lead us to ever increasingly worship you for all of our days until you call us home. Praise in Jesus' name.